Okay, friends, uh, when we started this study of Luke, we looked at the first five verses where Luke told us that he was going to tell us in an orderly fashion all about the important things we need to know about Jesus, how Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ who's come to live among us. And then we immediately skipped over a couple of chapters to go into the story of Jesus' life basically as an adult. One of the reasons that we did that is so that we could get straight into the heart of who Jesus was uh, as the Messiah, as the Christ. But now we're going to go back to the beginning of the story, as Luke tells it, partly because of the season. It just seems really weird to be talking about Christmas stuff in September, uh, although I guess in the retail world that's okay. That's not okay in the religious world. And I'm sorry, the church has been here longer than Walmart and Target and Amazon, and we will be here long after Walmart and Target and Amazon are gone. Amen. <laughs> at any rate, we're going to go back now to the first couple of chapters of Luke and look at uh, what you and I know to be the Christmas stories. Now, I dare say most of you uh, have heard most of these passages before, have spent some time in them, but there's always some new kind of truth, new to us anyway, or some new angle on the truth or some new word that is spoken to us in the midst of these things. Before we dive into the stories, though, let me just say a few things about these stories that Luke tells us, and they'll make sense to you, I'm sure, because you know them already. The story that Luke tells us about Jesus is a story that begins in the temple in Jerusalem, and it ends at the temple in Jerusalem. You wouldn't know that unless you sat and read the whole story all at once and were looking at it for the very first time. But Luke is going to show us throughout his entire gospel story that everything about Jesus is grounded in the Jewish faith, in the history of God with the people of Abraham. Luke is showing us that everything about Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, it is the culmination of God's plan. It is something that arises out of this, what really is just a tiny little nation of people, a beleaguered group for most of its history. It all arises out of that. And so let's remember again that if we're going to know Jesus very well at all, we need to know the people, the history, the religious tradition, the cultural context, all of that from which Jesus arises. So Jesus is, in a sense, a person whose life is continuous with the history of Judaism. It is, as far as the first Christians were concerned, and as far as Christians are concerned today, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God had been doing from the very beginning, particularly in the story as it started with Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then on and on and on. The story that Luke tells us, not only in the gospel account, but also in the Acts of the Apostles, which we've studied here before, is a story that's full of the presence of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is at work all the time. Angels pop up now and then. Spiritual revelations occur now and then. The Spirit, the living Spirit of God, the, the presence of God in, in the form that, that, that takes power in our world, if you will, uh, is there at the very beginning of the story and at the very end of the story and all throughout the story. 
So we always need to be looking for where God is at work. Now remember, Luke is telling us this story in order to convince us something important about Jesus, that this insignificant criminal who was killed on a cross is actually God's son and is actually uh, the, the pivotal point in all of the history of everything. Those are pretty big topics. And so as we understand that God is at work in Jesus, we'll begin to see who Jesus really is and what Jesus is all about. Throughout the telling of the story in Luke and in Acts, we see that the story is not just about the Jewish people. It's not just about the history of Judaism. It's a story that expands to include everyone. The gospel has universal implications. We also see that God is at work, God is moving, God is present, God is with us in and through Jesus and the church. Jesus and the church. The church, we, are the continuing presence of Jesus in the world. All of those are major themes that hit us smack dab in the face in the first few stories that we hear, the Christmas stories. You'll see how that begins to work itself out. Let's read the text again. There's some fairly long texts here, but it's really wonderful when you're studying the Bible to, to actually read the Bible. What a novel idea. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once, when he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense." Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John." You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. 
He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. There's 82 sermons right here. <laughs> this is, of course, known as the Annunciation about the birth of John, John who we will later call the baptizer, John the Baptist. Notice that Luke places all of his events that he tells us about within contemporary history. During the reign of Herod the Great, king of Palestine from about 37 years uh, to four years before the time Jesus was born. We can't get hung up on the calendars a lot. A thousand years after Jesus' life, the popes tried to go back and reconstruct the calendar, and they weren't exactly perfect with it. It doesn't make any difference to us, really. But it's during the reign of, of Herod the Great. We're told, first of all, about Zechariah and Elizabeth. What do we hear about them? They both descend from the line of priests. Zechariah himself is a priest. We're told that they're righteous, that they live according to the traditions and the customs of the Jewish people. They are good, faithful, solid churchgoers, we might say today. Of course, the church as such didn't exist then. The people of God did. They probably lived outside of the city walls of Jerusalem itself. That's where most of the priests live. But they would come into the temple so that Zechariah could perform his priestly duties. Now, once a year, one of the priests would be chosen, and most priests never were chosen. But once a year, one of the priests would be chosen to go into the Holy of Holies, into the innermost part of the temple. Only once a year would a human being enter that place to offer incense, to offer sacrifice and prayers to God. It was a huge honor. It was as if Zechariah had won the lottery. And so he goes in and he has an encounter with God, Gabriel, the angel. Now, right there, we need to stop for just a second and maybe answer a couple of questions in, in our own hearts. Really, do people see angels? Are there such things as angels? What happens when people have an encounter with angels? There are lots of folks today that are very skeptical about that. I'm not one of them because I've had encounters with God. And I've talked with dozens and dozens of other people, and I've read hundreds and hundreds of stories of people who have had encounters with God. You can say that they're figments of our imagination. You can say that they're the pro product of our own wishful thinking. You can say anything you want to. But when I've talked with people who have had an encounter with God, they know that it's something beyond themselves. If any of you have ever had such an encounter, and I would suspect in a group this large that at least one of you has, I would guess that you probably haven't talked very much about it because most of the time people don't talk about something so sacred and so holy. But if you'd like to talk about it, I'd love to visit with you about it and share with you some of the other stories I know. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are good, faithful folks. Zechariah goes in to offer the sacrifice. He has an encounter with God, an angel, a messenger. Now, throughout the Scriptures, most of the time, God does not directly appear. God sends someone or something else. We're talking about a mystery here of how it is that we have an encounter with the divine. 
but God sends Gabriel. And what is Zechariah's response? Zechariah's response is very, very typical of what happens in stories of Scripture when God shows up. He's terrified. He doesn't know what to make of it. He doesn't know what to do about it. He doesn't know how to respond. Almost always when an angel shows up in Scripture, the first thing the angel says is not, hi, I'm an angel, but don't be afraid. When we, tiny little insignificant creatures that we are, when we encounter even a tiny little piece of the power of the creature, the being, the God is the only way we can say it, who created everything, we're not so sure that we're not in deep trouble. We don't know what to do about it. Gabriel says, don't be afraid. And then Gabriel begins to announce God's plan for Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth are old. They haven't had kids. There's no way they're going to have kids. Where else do we encounter that story in Scripture? Abraham and Sarah, supremely so. There are a few other cases. The angel shows up and says, you're going to have a baby. Zechariah is not so sure that that's what's going to happen. That's also very typical. When people hear a word from God, they say, no, that can't be. <laughs> really? You're going to tell God what God can do and what God cannot do? <laughs> but that's what we do. Zechariah says no. So Gabriel says, you know what? Just so that maybe you can think about this a little while, maybe so that you can know that you've actually had an experience of the real God, you're not going to be able to speak for a while. And so Zechariah comes out after a while. The people have been worried about him. There is a tradition that when the one priest would go into the Holy of Holies that one time a year, that they would tie a rope to his ankle. And if something happened where he was overwhelmed with the presence of God or maybe even destroyed, even killed in the presence of God, they could pull him out. We don't know if that was the case with Zechariah or not, but that was one of the traditions. Zechariah comes out, it's clear to everybody that something big has happened there. And then, of course, a few months later, Zechariah has John. Now, Gabriel says to Zechariah who John is and what John is going to do. John will be the one who will preach to the people about the fact that something big is about to happen. Now, as Gabriel speaks to Zechariah. Luke is also speaking to us, the readers and the hearers of this story. We are meant to understand that something really, really big is about to happen. It's as if Luke is telling us the story before he tells us the story, and then he'll tell us the story, and after he tells us the story, he'll tell us about the story that he just told us. That's a typical uh, way of trying to communicate with people because we usually don't get it the first time, do we? Or the second time, or the third time, or if you're a teenager, the 800 millionth time. You just don't get it, right? So that's what's going on. Zechariah and Elizabeth. In a sense, your average garden variety, religious, observant, good people. God comes to them and says, God has a plan for your life. It is a surprising plan. Once again, a baby is going to be born to a very old couple. Once again, something miraculous, in a way, is going to happen. And I'll say the same thing about miracles uh, that I said about the appearance of angels. 
that you can find all sorts of ways not to believe them, and yet we do believe them. We do see times and places when something happens outside the normal thing that we experience. So John is going to be born. Just a couple words about John. John is going to be reared in what's called the Nazarite tradition. Zechariah and Elizabeth are so serious about their role now in God's plan that they're going to raise John in a particular religious tradition where he probably will take vows of drinking no alcohol. He probably won't get his hair cut. He will not be allowed to have contact with the dead. John, we know, becomes something of an eccentric character. He lives out in the wilderness. He eats locusts and wild honey. He wears strange clothing. That's one of the ways that God gets our attention sometimes is through people who don't live in the normal sort of way. In this case, it was understood to be someone whose life is dedicated to the purpose of God. In a sense, John is his own form of priest. And of course, as the child of Zechariah and Elizabeth, John too comes from a great priestly tradition. Now, I want to emphasize that because sometimes we look at what God does in the world and say, God doesn't have anything to do with the church anymore. God doesn't necessarily work within our traditions, our rituals, our habits. And yet here God is working through the traditions and rituals and habits and culture of a religious people. Later on, of course, Jesus will talk about, as John will talk about, how that, that tradition, that religion, that understanding of God needs to be brought back into line with what God really wants and what God is really all about. They'll talk about how we get lost sometimes and we make the traditions and the rituals and the habits the important thing, not God. But still, it is from out of those things that we learn about God. In a way, this is kind of a, a backhanded way of supporting the, the life of the community of faith. And I mention that to you all as if I'm preaching to the choir. You're not sitting back there where the choir normally does. You're sitting out here. But you are practicing some of the ancient rituals and traditions and habits of the people of God by reading the Scriptures, by studying the Scriptures, by coming to talk with other people about the Scriptures and what they mean in your life. This is what nourishes and feeds the life of faith. And it is non-negotiable. It has to happen for the life of the church, for the life of faith to continue. Let's continue on, verses 26 through 38 of chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. 
Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. You've heard this before, right? <laughs> of course. We need Christmas music playing in the background. Okay, the Annunciation to Mary about the coming birth of Jesus. Notice that the angel first comes to an old man in the temple. Now the angel comes to a very young woman who's not even quite married yet. You and I don't think anything of that simple fact that I just stated because we're so used to the story. But in the first century in the culture of the Jews, it was understood that God almost always only came to old men, or at least men, that God almost never had anything to do with women because women didn't really count. They were second-class citizens. Their testimony was not allowed in court. They were not allowed to own property. Everything about their lives was determined by the men who were present in their lives. So the simple fact that the angel comes to a woman, a young woman, an unmarried woman, is absolutely scandalous and unheard of. We can go a long way with that, talking about what God intends for all of His people, regardless of their gender or their sex, however you want to talk about that. But here we see that God is acting in very surprising ways. It's surprising that an old couple are going to have a baby. It's even more surprising that God would show up and dare to visit with a young woman, and oh, by the way, she's going to have a baby too. Now, there are lots of things about this story that people choose to believe that are not necessarily traditional. Some people say, well, to say that Mary was a virgin really was only to say that Mary was a young woman, because sometimes that word virgin refers to just a young woman. They want to discount the idea of a miraculous conception, if you will. But using my principle that God can do whatever God wants to do, it's not a far stretch at all to think that God could arrange it so that Mary would become pregnant without the normal human agency involved of a man and a woman coming together. Do with that what you want to do. The more important thing for first century people was not the question of a miracle happening. They believed those miracles. The more important thing was that God had come to this woman and that God was going to do something in her life and with her life that was going to be amazing. Now notice there are some differences in the way Mary interacts with the angel, right? So the angel shows up and, and Mary says, hmm, I wonder what's going on here. We're not told that Mary was terrified. Now later on the angel says, don't be afraid. So maybe she was afraid, but Mary had a little bit different response to the angel. The angel says, God has a big plan for your life. And oh, by the way, if Mary actually is not yet married, only betrothed, then God's plan for her life is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Now, in our culture today, this wasn't as true as it was 45 years ago when I started teaching the Scripture as a 19-year-old kid. But it's true today in a lot of our culture, that for a person to become pregnant before being married is almost inconsequential. It's hardly even remarkable. But in Mary's day, it was a huge, huge problem. Joseph, as her betrothed, would have had the right. In fact, he would have been expected 
not to continue the plan to be married to Mary. By being betrothed, what we think was going on, if they were following the tradition and custom, and there's no reason to believe they were not, sometime at an early age, Joseph's parents and Mary's parents had arranged for the two of them to be married. That kind of arranged marriage still happens a great deal in the Middle East, in traditional uh, Muslim as well as Christian communities. I can introduce you to a lot of people that I know now in the Middle East who are married as the result of an arrangement. That was called a, a betrothal. Sometimes an agreement was made early on. Uh, the woman might be, oh, six years old, eight years old, ten years old, and understand that later on when she became of age, 12 or 14, maybe 16, that would be getting on in years, uh, the marriage would, be, would actually be completed. So Mary is betrothed, they're, they're promised. This is, this is a done deal as far as the culture is concerned, as far as Mary and Joseph are concerned. But now there's this huge kink that could completely unravel the deal and consign Mary to a second-class status even among women, second-class among second-class people. But Mary says, okay. We can understand why a large part of Christian history, Christian tradition, and theology, especially expressed in the Roman Catholic part of our family, makes such a big deal about Mary. Mary hears news that really, in a way, should destroy her life, but she believes it's from God, so she accepts that news. Mary is, in many ways, a model for all of us of what we would traditionally call Christian piety. God shows up, Mary accepts that it's God. Maybe she's a little bit afraid. Actually, when God does show up in your life, you had better be afraid because something's getting ready to change. But not so afraid that you don't continue with God's plan for your life. Here I am, a servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Let it be, let it be. No wonder the Beatles made such a beautiful song out of it, right? So Mary's going to have a baby. She is righteous. She's devout. She is also someone who stands firmly within the, Judeo the, the Jewish tradition. I almost said the Judeo-Christian tradition. It didn't exist yet then, <laughs> right? And something impossible is going to happen. It's going to happen because God is at work. Now, here's another thing that we need to be careful of. Sometimes people look at the, the fact of who Zechariah and Elizabeth were. They were good people. And we look at the facts of who Mary was. She was a good person. And we say, well, God only shows up in good people's lives. And that's actually not the case. God showed up in Matthew's life. He was a tax collector. God showed up in, in Judas's life. Judas had a problem with how he uh, dealt with God's plan for his life. Here, though, we see that God shows up in the normal, everyday, routine life of normal, everyday, routine, faithful followers. And so whatever God is going to do is within that tradition and in that sense. Let's keep on going. Verses 39 to 56. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? 
For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. All right. Any good Catholics here? Any bad Catholics here? Any good Presbyterians who know about Catholicism? This is what we call the Magnificat, right? That's the first word of, of, of Mary's hymn, Mary's prayer, Mary's exclamation about what God is doing. Magnificat, I magnify God. We can't make Mary into more than she is, just as we should never make her into less than she is. And I think Mary's own words would ensure that we keep Mary right where she should be. Mary glorifies God for what God is doing in her and with her. Uh, at this point, literally in her, in terms of the, the growth of Jesus. Mary gives God all the credit. Mary takes none of the credit. There's nothing in Scripture to indicate that Mary herself was conceived miraculously in a virgin birth. There is nothing to indicate that Mary herself has any particular special ability to bless us or lift us into God's presence. There's nothing about that in Scripture. And so you're listening to a good Protestant boy talking here but let's keep Mary in her place and let's make sure that we give Mary credit where credit is due. Mary accepts, Mary believes, Mary goes with God's plan and Mary sees clearly what God is doing in the world as he brings Jesus into the world. Now, it gets very confusing here talking about God and then Jesus, it's, it's kind of like Jesus is God's son, God's biological son, if you will. We know, of course, that Jesus is God, and, and we don't have time to talk about the mystery of the Trinity here, or the mystery of Jesus being fully God as well as fully human. And at Christmas time, we, we almost are forced to speak in terms of, of God the Father and Jesus the Son, the kid of God. That's not what we ultimately can say, but that's how we have to talk. Let's focus mostly, though, on what Mary says God is doing as he is planning to appear in the world and, and be set loose in the world as Jesus. What's God going to do? Well, after Mary gives God praise and worship and joy, then she begins to talk about what God is going to do. He's going to fulfill His promise. God is trustworthy. Now, it's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years 
since God made a promise to Abraham and a promise to the Hebrew people to bless all nations through them. But now that promise is going to be fulfilled. It's going to take a whole long time. It already has taken a long time. But that promise is being fulfilled in Jesus. That also is praise and blessing to God. It's a, it's a statement of faith, an affirmation of just how trustworthy God is. But then look at how God fulfills that promise. He fulfills it by demonstrating His strength, the strength of His arm. Later on, the church will come to understand that that strength is expressed in the sacrificial death and then the miraculous resurrection of Jesus. But for now, we're left with that idea that God is going to show His strength through Jesus. Now, we've already read some of Luke. We already know that the power of God is present in Jesus to heal people, to forgive people, to receive people back into a relationship with God that gives them not just eternal life, but abundant life. But there's even more than that. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now, this is where Mary's speech should start to make us uncomfortable. And the rest of it should make us a little bit uncomfortable, or maybe a lot a bit uncomfortable. Mary says he's going to scatter the proud. He's going to bring down the powerful. He's going to fill the hungry and send the rich away empty. What Mary talks about here is something that's actually consistent with all the rest of the story of Scripture. It's a, consistent with everything that the prophets said. It's consistent with what Israel knew to be true about God. That God does not tolerate our pride. That God does not tolerate our putting ourselves in God's place. God will not tolerate anything in us that makes us think that we're anything special. That we have the power to save ourselves, to be so holy, so righteous, so rigorous and fulfilling rules and regulations that we can deserve God's love. Now that sounds like God is being just a little bit too picky here, maybe a little bit too demanding. But the reason God will not tolerate our pride is because it separates us from Him and turns the world upside down from the way the world should be. It doesn't work if we're God because why? We're not God. Only God is God. And so in Jesus, God is about the business of of showing us one more time in the best way, the most complete and fulfilled way, who actually is God and how to get our lives straight with the way everything has been created to be so that we then can be blessed. God takes away our pride. We say that, that pride, in a sense, is the original sin, right? The, 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 the snake says uh, to Eve, hey, you can be just like God. He said, yeah, I sure can. Adam, here, eat the apple. You can be too. That's the end of it right there. God is putting it all back together. God is defeating our pride. He is bringing down the powerful. Now, that's another way of saying that, that, that God is, is putting Himself back on the throne. Now, that's fine if we have kings and queens and presidents and governors and powerful people in the world. We need people to, to fulfill some of those roles of helping lead the world. I'm not anti any of that necessarily. 
What I am anti, what I am against, is anything that will elevate any human being. I don't care if they're the most powerful human being in the world, that will elevate any human being to a place where we think that they have the powers of God. Anytime any human being says, I can save you. Anytime any human being says, I'm the answer to all of our problems, that human being is in direct contradiction to the plan of God and the way that things work in the world. It's very clear from just this one scripture here, and it's repeated over and over and over again in the entire story of the scriptures. And those human beings who are in places of power and who serve us the best are the ones who serve us with humility and the ones who serve us, not the other way around. That story is right here in what Mary said. It's right there in the Magnificat. He fills the hungry with good things. He lifts up the lowly. This statement is a radical statement about the equality of all human beings and God's plan for all human beings to have everything that they need. Some of us have too much. Some of us don't have enough. God would like to see us bring balance to that. There's a lot of conversation about how we do that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have our double cream, banana-filled, 8 million calorie lattes every morning that cost more than what the average person makes in a month in a lot of the world. Or maybe I am saying that. I don't know. What I am saying is that you and I, living where we live, being who we are, need to take very seriously what God is doing in the world in Jesus and what God says in the Magnificat. It's all about blessing everyone, not taking blessing away from someone, but about giving blessing to those who have little, who have no blessing. God is doing all of that. It's spiritual, yes. God is attacking our spiritual pride, but it's more than just spiritual. If spiritual doesn't end up in physical, real, then it's not much use, actually, in this world. So it's all according to the promise that He has made. All right, let me stop there, because the story is going to continue. We will not meet next week, by the way, Thanksgiving week. We will meet the week after Thanksgiving. And then the week after that is when we have our Christmas celebration. But the next time we meet, two weeks from today, we'll, we'll finish with the rest of the birth stories about Jesus. And then, of course, through the rest of Advent, we'll be talking about those, uh, those stories as well. Um, if you have a question, if you have a comment, start making your way down to the microphone. By the way, I meant to congratulate you all. Some of you, four of you, had the courage to sit in the front row today. Do not be afraid, said the preacher. <laughs> right? And others, are, you moved up. That's good. We can actually see you. What a great thing. Any comments, any thoughts, any questions in this? Okay, let me make just a couple of final comments then. Let me say that as we read these stories, these super, super familiar Christmas stories, that we need to spend some time looking at what God might be saying to us or saying about us that's helpful to us then. Where do you see yourself in Zechariah or in Elizabeth or in Mary? Where do you see God saying something to you in these stories? We can argue that this is the most important birth story that exists. You can read about the 
the birth of, of Rome and Ramus and Romulus or whatever all those stories are. I don't know those stories real well. We can read about the birth of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Beyonce or Jay-Z or I don't know, all these different folks. But this is the story that makes a difference. Read the stories over and over and over again. Think about times that God might have appeared to you. Some of you know those times very well. My experience of those times is that I'm still processing them. I'm still unpacking them. I'm still understanding what it's about when God has appeared to me. And I look back on my life and I hear and I see times when God appeared and I didn't realize it was God at the time. Has that ever happened to any of you? Right? Where is God moving in your life? As the story is going to unfold, we're going to see that God pours out His Holy Spirit on everyone. Where is God going to appear? What is God's plan for your life? Now, if any of you come up to me and say, hi, I'm uh, 95 years old and I just learned that I'm pregnant, well, then we're going to have a conversation like no other conversation I've ever had. <laughs> but God may have something equally surprising, equally strange, equally amazing, I don't know, for your life. It'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? That's enough. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for being with us this morning. We're not sure that we always want you to show up in our lives because we like running our own lives, but we're glad that you're there. And we will in faith ask you to show up to let us know what you want us to do, to let us know that you love us, to let us know that you're here to help us get through. In all of these things, we want to give you and only you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless y'all. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you here at the 82 events that Terry talked about earlier. Bye-bye.